Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Disha Filia. Disha's fiction debut is The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, a collection of short stories about Black women, sex, and the Black church that was recently longlisted for the National Book Award. But I was like, oh my gosh, this book is all about mothers and daughters. It's like, it's as much about mothers and daughters as it is about Black women, sex, and the Black church. Like, it, you know, parallel themes. And that was not conscious on my part. Disha's writing on race, parenting, gender, and culture has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, McSweeney's, The Rumpus, Brevity, Dead Housekeeping, Harvard Review, and elsewhere. The Secret Lives of Church Ladies is full of rich, complicated characters. Church ladies, yes, as well as their daughters and grandmothers, plus men who at turns comfort, entice, and abandon them. In the first story, Eula, the title character struggles to reconcile her faith with the sexual relationship she maintains with her female best friend. In Snowfall, a lesbian couple struggles against the harsh winter of their adopted city and the nostalgia they feel for the families that rejected them. Peach Cobbler is written from the point of view of a girl whose strict, uncaring mother is having an affair with their pastor. Across the stories, there are younger women looking at older women for some understanding of how to be or how not to be. These matriarchal relationships are at the heart of the secret lives of church ladies, though Disha says she wasn't aware of this until late in the process. Here, we talk about the profound impact her relationship with her own mother and her mother's untimely death had on Disha's writing. We also talk about writing into women's contradictions, experimenting with form, and staying true to your vision even in the face of rejection. At WMFA's Patreon page, Disha and I talk about the craft of writing sex and what separates good sex writing from bad sex writing. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. First of all, congratulations on, on your publication birthday. This it hasn't been too far away now. It's a week old. Exactly a week. <laughs> yes. Thank you. The, the book baby is a week old today. How was, how was the um, COVID release experience? You know, this whole experience has been oddly okay. You know, you know, pandemic notwithstanding. Um, but, you know, we, I think some of us are learning that it's not, you know, literally the end of the world to have your book coming out at this time um, because everything is virtual. Um, we are actually, you know, writers are reading, reaching audiences that we may not have been able to reach otherwise because travel, you know, is expensive and, mm-hmm. you know, I still have a book tour that has more dates than and locations than it would have if um, the world were open. Probably um, the bookstores are, you know, reaching out, and um, especially in the early days, even before my book came out, the early days of the the pandemic, people wanted to create community or engage in community and share art, and and so that's something we were still able to do safely. Um, you know, through the miracle of Zoom and Crowdcast and all of these other platforms. Um, and so in that, in those respects, um, it's possible that I, you know, th- that it was beneficial to my book that we were kind of all stuck in the house together. And so, you know, my world actually got a lot larger, even though I stuck in the house, <laughs> you know, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I um, I think too, like, you know, And I would certainly put myself in this category, but I think many writers are kind of maybe slightly extroverted, uh, Mm -hmm. but very much introverts. And so I think that this sort of thing actually kind of does, like I've done a couple of writing workshops this summer and it was actually kind of great because you have the perfect amount of socializing and that, but then at, at a certain point in the real world, when you would hit this wall of like, oh my God, social anxiety, or like, oh my God, like people conversation overload, you could just turn off your computer. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yep. It was really interesting. I was reading, I was finishing the book on my way. I had to go back. I'm from West Virginia originally. Um, I know Mm -hmm. we know each other from Pittsburgh. Um, But I had to go back this past weekend um, for a family funeral. And so like many of the characters in this book, I have uh, my own kind of church ladies, my own very Eastern Mm -hmm. European Roman Catholic church ladies that have been Mm -hmm. around me my whole life, but I don't 
really identify with all of that as much as an adult, but but it was really interesting to to read these characters and think about these dynamics and these relationships and then go attend a church service for the first time and I don't even know how long and and just oh, really wow. think about the ways that like these women you know support each other and engage with each other and the I found myself thinking a lot and I would love if this moves you to to hear what you think about this too as it um pertains to the stories in this amazing collection um I started to think about like the the real place that ritual has in for us in terms of comfort and kind of and nostalgia you know even when it is something that we maybe don't necessarily feel as connected to anymore that that we know that those sort of touchstones and motions are there um mm -hmm. you know I'm thinking about the couple um where they have the same memories, even though they don't have the same memories, you know, because they yes. came from different places, but they have all of these, these touchstones. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, if that, if that speaks to you, which sounds like maybe it does, how those sorts of touchstones came, came out and made their way out through across these stories? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think it's just a larger cultural um, phenomena, really. Um, and I think back to, you know, just looking at an arc of time, you know, thinking about enslaved people being brought to this country, you know, and they came from different places and different tribes and, you know, but they were having this shared horror, right? Mm. So that previously, you know, they were divided by all of these, you know, whether it was nationality or language or, or culture or spiritual practice. And then, you know, there's this sort of shared experience. And so you, you, you have people who have that kind of collective, will now have that collective memory and the collective rituals and the collective daily life. And then, you know, free people, you know, post-emancipation, you think about the two great migrations that happened in the U.S. and you had people, Black people moving from the South to the North and to the Midwest and out West. And, you know, the things that, that the traditions that they took, you know, um, it, you know, branching out from the South that we still see for Black folks culturally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and church and religion was part of that experience. And so, um, and then on a more micro level, you know, when you go places and, you know, are you the only Black person there? You, you know, you're looking for the other Black person in, in majority uh, white spaces because there's an assumption, a hope of, you know, shared experience, shared knowing, um, you know, a shared awareness and perhaps, you know, and hopefully, you know, camaraderie. And, um, and you know, and, and obviously, you know, Black people are not a monolith, um, but we do have those cultural touchstones and then specifically Black folks in the South, you know, in that story you're uh, speaking of Snowfall, you know, the, 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 I like your word, the rituals with the grandmothers, the TV shows they watch, the food they ate, the ritual of eating how we eat crabs. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we know that when people migrate, they take those things with them. And so um, a dear friend of mine, Tamara Winfrey Harris, is writing a book on Black people in the mis Midwest and, you know, talking about food traditions and how people from the South went to the Midwest and then what did those, you know, their food traditions changed. You know, mm -hmm. there were some things that remained the same and then there were some things that adapted and absorbed the the culture of, of you know, the, the white ethnic folks in places, you know, like Chicago, in Indiana and so forth. Um, and so there's this adaptability that happens and, you know, culture being at the same time, it's sort of fluid and, and it's absorbing place um, and circumstance, um, but then it also persists. You know, if you look at social media and meme culture uh, amongst Black folks are those shared rituals and shared knowings, a lot of which is around food. Yeah, the, I, that's funny. I was reading another interview with you uh, in, in preparation for our conversation and you were talking about memes and I loved that idea of like, I don't think I've ever really like looked at memes and attached them to my creative life, but but they are, of mm -hmm. course, this incredibly creative experience and act. And, and I love the the impact that they seem to have on you because the um, instructions for Christian husbands, um, is that, yes. did that come from a, from a meme? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In part, yes. Yeah. So, you know, I had been having kind of an ongoing conversation um, with a friend of mine and, and he and I would joke about 
there was, you know, always some story in, in the news about, um, you know, somebody getting a man getting caught cheating. And, you know, it was always sort of positioning the women or pitting the women, the wife and then the the mistress, you know, a, against each other. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, it's the man who's, you know, right. the culprit. Um, but somehow, you know, he's not involved in any of this. And um, and so we long remarked on just sort of that triumvirate. You know, my friend Wade and I would have these conversations and say, you know, there should be like a school so people know how to like play their role in these things so that you wouldn't have all this drama. Um, and then uh, at some point there were memes and pictures going around and it was like i t-shirts i heart her husband and it's like but i've got his 401k you know and again it's it's the two women and and i you know wade and i just thought that was fascinating it was just an ongoing kind of joke between us but then i thought like what if we you know um subverted that what if instead of the guy kind of having the upper hand, what if the woman took the upper hand? And what if it's the woman who is the one that's usually and supposed to be, you know, in the shadows, you know, the the mistress, the side chick, what if she took um, the upper hand and she made the rules um, that he had to follow? And they were the rules that she made that served her best and that she had the upper hand. So, um, it was fun playing with that. It felt like a little bit of subversion. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that story. I mean, for one thing, it's just this great, and I want to talk about this more later, but like, it's this great formal exercise in like, in a collection that has, that plays with form in in a lot of fun ways. Um, but it's also exactly what you're saying. You know, we think of, it's very easy in those dynamics to reduce that other woman to this sort of kind of lesser than needy sort of role. And it really mm-hmm. is at the at the risk of, you know, empowering, I think is kind of such an eye rolly word now at this point. But yeah. <laughs> but it is this very um it it, it it like it makes that role kind of she like stands up straighter. You know, it's this it's this mm-hmm. real reclamation of, of something. And I think, you know, even going back to where we started talking with the idea of the rituals and the those kind of touchstones that that persist and evolve, it I felt reading this like that that a lot of these characters it was about um being able to decide what they wanted to keep and what they wanted to let go of yes yes and even the idea that we have a choice Mm. because you know so often we we inherit uh those rituals (laughs) we inherit those ways of living that can be so confining or unfair or uh unhealthy and so to know and to recognize or to, to, to discover that you can put something down because maybe it wasn't yours to carry it to, in to begin with. You know, mm-hmm. it's something that got passed down, that got passed down. And it not only passed down generationally, but passed down, passed down through these, you know, patriarchal structures, whether it's the church or whether it's the family or both, or, you know, passed down as just the outgrowth of white supremacy, you know, all these things that we should not be carrying anymore. Um, but, um, you know, what if you're the first one in your family or the only one in your family to say, I'm not going to carry this anymore? You know, that's scary. It's, you know, there's a lot of risk there. You risk losing um, your loved ones. You risk losing maybe some comfort, you know, because even the things that don't always serve us, they could still be comfortable. Oh, absolutely. I love um, Snowfall was was definitely one of my favorites, as you can probably tell from how many times I've brought it up. Oh, already. Um, but uh, there was this line that that really stopped me. And um, I, and and I, I would love to it kind of opened up this this thinking that I saw across across the stories. Um, the narrator writes, we miss their one gold tooth that made us wonder who <laughs> we had been as young women. Um, and I think part of why I love, I mean, first of all, it's just such a beautiful image and it's just that like, that's just like a line of poetry, you know, it's like got everything Mm -hmm. contained in it. And I've read you speak a little, speak a little bit about this, um, the kind of idea of, of being a girl and looking to the women around you Mm -hmm. to try to understand what being a woman is and means and looks like. And so like, I loved that line, I think is just this little glimmer of like, it's like the dirt in the oyster shell. That's just like, oh, what, what's this? What, mm-hmm. what option is this that I that I could have had? And you you navigate that so well. This kind of intergenerational. I don't really quite know what to talk. How to how to 
articulate it because sometimes they're seeing each other, but oftentimes they're not. And so it is this sort of kind of disconnect of just like the there's a recognition that something is different, but maybe you can't quite understand where the other person's coming from or put mm -hmm. them in, you know, put yourself in their shoes. Um, but can you talk a little bit about diving into that kind of female gaze, I guess, on, you know, being kind of of this younger generation and sort of looking to these elder women and, mm -hmm. and, and the experience that that comes from that? You know, and I think it's, I think we have to look multiple times in our lives, right? Because I think when we look as kids, you know, as teenagers, we're just absolutely convinced that, you know, older people are like a whole other like species of people, you know, that mm -hmm. they don't know anything, it, you know, everything is new and different. And, you know, uh, we don't know then uh, that it's true, you know, that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Um, and what is it? The only constant is change. So yes, the world keeps changing and we keep figuring out how to adapt, but that doesn't mean that pe older people don't have things to teach us um, because they had to adapt <laughs> at some point, you know? So if nothing mm -hmm. else, you know, they, you know, there is wisdom there, but, you know, early on, we don't always recognize that. Um, and then there comes, you know, once we've had some time to grow and to live and to have our hearts broken and be disappointed and, you know, learn a bit more, then we we realize, okay, they might have something to teach us and, and, and something to tell us. And then if we're lucky, we get to come back a third time, but sometimes by then they're gone. Like in, in, in my yeah. case, you know, I lost my mother and my grandmother in 2005. And and there's so many different conversations I would have with them now um, because I'm a different person, you know, than I was, you know, um, 15 years ago um, and certainly different than when I was a teenager. And so, you know, we might have a little curiosity about them and we're definitely watching, um, but, it, you know, I don't think we embrace um, older people and their wisdom until we've been knocked on our butts, you know, a few times. Um, my grandmother used to say um, when, when I or someone, you know, younger would think we knew better or didn't mm -hmm. want to take her advice about something or, 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 you know, thought she didn't know what she was talking about, she wouldn't argue. She would just go, mm-hmm, just keep living just keep living. <laughs> and and I, now I'm, I've turned it to my grandmother because I, you know, I, I see younger people who are younger than I am thinking that they know best and thinking, you know, and they have this view of the world that's very limited because they haven't really lived and they haven't fallen mm -hmm. on their butts. And, you know, even the whole um, commentary, you know, we are not our ancestors. It's like, you're not, you're mm -hmm. not, you're not a fraction of the people they were, <laughs> you know, but mm -hmm. it's made to, um, it, it it's insinuates that, you know, our ancestors, say, during the civil rights movement were passive or anything like that, or something like that. And, you know, that's a lie. That's just a lie, you know. Um, but, you know, you keep living and you keep learning and, and you you find out what you don't know and you're, you're humbled by all of that. Um, but, you know, hopefully if we're smart when we're younger, um, we don't completely you know, ignore um, our our elders, our and and um, the stories of our ancestors um, that we listen and then we watch and we observe. And um, you know, I was a know it all kid, but I still absorbed all of this, and that's why it's coming out in the stories. You know, I still found it right. fascinating. You know, but I was not going to go up to an older woman and be like, "I find you fascinating. Do you masturbate?" You know, <laughs> never going right. to be like <laughs> that. Um, you know, but we, you know. I don't think we all we we give teenagers credit enough for having rich internal lives, you know. Um, right. But you know, if we all think about how we were as teenagers, all that stuff we kept to ourselves, or things that we only told our closest friends, all of those secrets, all of those you know imaginings and wonderings, we were trying to figure things out. Um, and so, those of us who were fortunate to have um, home lives and community lives that were intergenerational, you know, older people were a part of that. And it wasn't, you know, just a Lord of the Flies existence. Where it was like the, you know, the, the, you know, just learning from people who are our own age and, you know, but, you know, really kind of tuning in and, and being curious. Um, I think that's it. Like I, 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 my wish is that, you know, young people are smart enough to be curious 
about people besides themselves and their peers um, right. to really be curious um, <laughs> right now. in, in this moment, um, I don't know if you've seen this, it's on TikTok, but people are showing their grandparents the yes, video. I this. I've seen all the memes of like, <laughs> I told my grandmother that WAP stands for like, one is waffles and pancakes. I can't remember what the other is. Or they're like, they play it for them. And there was one where she was playing it for her grandmother. And her grandmother was like, did she say? And she said the P word. And then she <laughs> started shimmying her shoulders. Like she clearly was taken yeah. back to her, uh-huh. you know, times, you know, or earlier times when, when, uh, when, when, you know, she could relate. Um, and so, you know, we have to remember that, you know, older yeah. people, they've lived, but that doesn't mean, you know, there's time for them to just check right. out, you know, they're still here. Um, they're still vibrant. They still have a lot to teach us. Um, and, um, and we may have more in common than we realize. So I was always fascinated with older women, in, you know, mm-hmm. but I live with my mother and my mm-hmm. grandmother and, and my grandmother mm-hmm. had one gold tooth. And I was like, other people's mm-hmm. grandmothers mm-hmm. don't have a gold tooth. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's the same thing of like, you know, that, that we're dealing with um, so, so blatantly right now in America that we've certainly always been dealing with, but, um, this, I, this idea of, of being able to have the curiosity, uh, to imagine life beyond like your lived or just observed experience, you know, it's like seeing your grandmother, mm-hmm. like outside of the context of being your grandmother and trying to imagine something different. Oh, that is so true. I mean, and even with parents, you know, it's a while before you realize that your parents Uh are actually uh people, (laughs) just your parents. And then you show them, I think, I hope a lot more grace. And sometimes that happens when you are a parent yourself. Um, I can't say that as soon as I became a parent that the, you know, I was able to flip that switch and it really wasn't until my parents mm-hmm. passed away and um, and with a lot of therapy, it was like, okay, they were people who were doing the best they could, just like I'm a person doing the best I can with as a parent with my kids and who, you know, you mess up and, you know, but there's grace. Um, and so I, you know. Yeah, I was well into my 30s before that kicked in. And in fact, some of it just yeah. kicked in recently. You know, you have these aha moments about certain things. Um, but yeah, seeing your your elders as people um, mm. is very freeing. You know, you can have a whole different kind of relationship with them. Um, and I think it can be really rich. That makes me wonder. Uh, it makes me kind of want another story about Jile where she actually kind of has these conversations with her grandmother and with the the preacher's wife and and gets to figure out a little bit more about what they're what they're about yeah she (laughs) so I I love with her with with that character you know the 14 year old voice and so I had a lot of fun with that oh the voice is so fresh oh my god it just like dances on the page it's so good we were just wild at 14. We just, the things we thought and the things we did, you know, um, what is it? God looks after fools and babies. Like <laughs> where any of us are here to tell the tale. Cause again, you think you're invincible. You think, you know, everything. Um, and Gile, you know, she really thought, and she, she is a smart girl, but, um, but yeah, so she, there were still things that she would only put in that journal. So it's, it's nice to live in somebody's head. I want to go back to to what you were saying, um, because uh, another thing that I read that stuck with me and and resonates for me as well is, um, you know, you you were talking in another interview about your mother passing and and you said that your relationship with your mother is the defining relationship of your life. Um, Mm -hmm. And so much of the stories here in this collection deal with that mother daughter dynamic or like a kind of matriarch daughter, granddaughter dynamic. Um, And I think that the mother daughter, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm only a daughter, so I can't really Mm -hmm. make the comparison. But you know, as a, as a in that dynamic, you're kind of, you're so similar, and you're so different at the same time. And there's Mm. so much. um, I feel like sometimes, you know, it's just, it can be so hard to unravel that everything that's going on there um and and part of what i think is so 
wonderful about this collection is how many different avenues you take with it from the, um, I'm thinking of, of Snowfall again, and then I wanna make sure I get the name of the last, um, the last story in the collection, right? Oh, the last story is When Eddie Levert Comes. Eddie Levert. I couldn't remember his name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when Eddie Levert Comes, which is this beautiful and just so heartbreaking you know, story of this woman who's who's caretaking for her mother, who is who is um, struggling with dementia, but, you know, complicated by the fact that this mother wasn't necessarily a great mother to this to this woman. And, and she's kind of forced to sort of hold this responsibility that her siblings don't have to hold while her siblings are adored and she is kind of, you know, pushed to the side. And I just wondered, like, I don't even know how to ask it. I just want to talk about mother daughter. I just want to talk mm -hmm. about writing mothers and daughters just because it's mm -hmm. an endlessly fascinating subject for me as well. Well, my advice would be don't intend to write about mothers and daughters and it'll just happen. <laughs> that, because I know it sounds- And then your therapist will say you're making great progress. It sounds so weird, but it wasn't until I had turned the manuscript for this book in and I was you know, going through probably the first round of edits or something. So I don't remember what triggered it, but I was like, oh my gosh, this book is all about mothers and daughters. Like- it's as much about mothers and daughters as it is about black women, sex in the black church. Like it, you know, mm -hmm. parallel mm -hmm. themes. And mm -hmm. I, and I, and that was not conscious on my part. Um, but I, but you'll notice it's only in the one direction that it's, we're always getting the point of view of the daughters. Yes. Um, we get a little bit from granny in Jael um, because she is a mother, a grandmother and a great grandmother, but everywhere else, it's the daughters who we identify with or who we see things mostly through their lens. And I think it's because that's just where I was slash am right now. Like I, mm -hmm. I don't write, I used to write a lot about parenting. Um, <clears throat> I wrote a, a lot about parenting before I really started to publish fiction. Um, but I don't know that I'm, I'm, ready to write those relationships. And again, maybe it, you know, it's not even a conscious thing. Cause if I think if I said, I'm going to write a collection about mothers and daughters, I think it would look very different. And I probably would have been paralyzed. But I think because, as I did say, that relationship with my mother was so defining and not only defining, but unfinished in some ways, because my mother, um, I was 34 when my mother passed away and she was 52. Um, and so you know, we were robbed of time by cancer, by breast cancer. And the last six weeks of her life when she was in hospice, um, you know, we mended our bridges and we did the the healing that needed to happen, but we didn't have time, you know? And I think that these stories, I think the mother-daughter stuff popped up in these stories because I'm still sorting that stuff out, or at least I was. Maybe I'm done now. I don't know. Um but I think a lot of that stuff was just really fresh for me and, and tender. And so if I was writing about somebody, um, it was like, where's her mother? <laughs> you know, where's her <laughs> mother in all of this? And, and what is there to kind of work out? And so sometimes the mothers are there, you know, right in, in, in the present. And then sometimes they're on the periphery, um, but they're there. They, you know, they have a presence. Um, so I, I wish I could say like here's some advice or here you know some guidance on how I did it but you know I would say don't intend to write about them <laughs> it'll just happen <laughs> but also I think maybe what we do have to have is a willingness to write about mothers whether we're writing about our mothers or just mother you know a, a fictional mother um uh, write about them as people and not mm -hmm. as you know mothers and only mothers but as fully realized people. And um, I remember after thinking about these stories through the mother-daughter lens, when I realized that that's what had happened, I was like, our mothers are contradictions. Like that's something that just occurred to me. And so I think if we can write our mothers as the contradictions they are, and as the full people they are, like, you know, I, I'll just speak for myself. I don't want to read about mothers who are angelic. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that would bore me, <laughs> you know, I, I, again, obviously I like mothers who have secrets, you know, or I like mothers who are trying to figure things out. I like mothers who have messed stuff up and then the, maybe the story is about how they try and make it right. Um, I've, I'm writing something now that 
you know, it didn't start, it didn't, it wasn't supposed to be a mother-daughter story, but there's a mother-daughter angle. And it, the main character is someone who completely blew motherhood. Um, and now that her daughter is in her 30s, she's trying to have a relationship with her. Um, and so, you know, those are the kinds of things is, you know, make things messy for mothers, allow mothers to make messes. Um, and I think that that's what we have to do in those relationships, you know, with with women who are mothers, you know, is allow them that full spectrum instead of having these unreal, you know, these unrealistic, unfair and very confining expectations of them. I agree with everything you're saying. And and also, you know, this collection um, presents so many complicated black women um, mm -hmm. that I think, you know, that's certainly not my area of expertise, but I would I would love to hear you talk about um, if that's something that you thought about. I mean, I imagine it is. I don't want to sound glib, but, you know, like not that you needed to engineer this kind of like revolving cast of, of black female characters. But but how conscious were you, if at all, about like subverting certain expectations or stereotypes or, um, you know, presumptions of, well, well, Black women in fiction are strong or they are stoic or they, you know, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. I, I tried to just write Black women as either I knew them to be or as I wanted them to be more often, like I'm thinking about, you know, instructions for married Christian husbands, like that kind of taking charge, you know, that was an instance where um, I wanted the character to be something other than that traditional role. Um, but I wasn't particularly, mm. and I know you're not saying this, but the word comes to mind. Like I wasn't burdened with that worry just because when I'm writing, it's really indulgent for me. <laughs> and so I, I tend to write what I like. And I, and again, I like things kind of messy and complicated. And so if the character showed up and she embodied one of those tired tropes, then I feel like it was my job to, you know, throw that into play, right? And so Lyra shows up 42, still sucking in her stomach and wearing a girdle, you know, so talk about restriction, right? <laughs> like physically. And so, um, so I don't uh -huh. have a problem having those characters show up in the ways that they traditionally have, but I want to see them bucking against it. Now they may or may not be successful, but they're going to buck up against it. Backing up, let me ask you, because I know you said, you know, the mother daughter dynamic was something that was kind of only revealed to you a little bit afterward. Did you, at what point did you realize you had a collection? Were you consciously writing a collection? How did they, how did these stories kind of start to speak to each other? So that was, it was really intentional. Um, I wasn't, I mean, you know, these are just the people and the voices and the situations and, you know, that are in my imagination. And, and the first impulse for me to write around fiction was not church ladies, but just dissatisfied women. And mm. that's because I was a dissatisfied woman. <laughs> um, I, you know, my earliest fiction writing, you know, the women were church ladies. They were matronly. They were older than me. They were stuck. And that's how I felt, even though I was, you know, in my late 20s, early 30s, you know, I, I identify with those women. Um, and so that's kind of, so I've, I clearly, I've been working something out there. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And so, um I had a couple of attempts at novels with these kinds of characters. And then I, and then I stalled on my one novel and I already had an agent because she had represented my co-parenting book and she represents fiction and nonfiction. So she said, you know, when you're ready with your novel, I'm ready. Um, but she knew I was struggling with that novel. Um, but I was writing these short stories and she's local here in Pittsburgh. So she would come and to come to my readings and she heard me read a couple of things. And she said, you know, these church lady stories are really good. You know, I wonder if it, you might find it easier to put together a collection of them, you know, maybe less daunting than the novel, you know, while you're kind of taking a little break from the novel, right? You know, you could focus on these stories. And I had, so, until she said that, I hadn't seen the that potential. I was so focused on, I got to write this novel and, oh, I'm just kind of 
you know, dabbling over here in this other thing. So that's when I got really intentional. And so everything that I had in my, you know, in progress folder, just like it could be a snippet of dialogue, it could be the t- a title of something, or it could be 10 pages. I thought, you know, what if I got really intentional about all of these and made sure that every story either had a church lady or somebody that I call church lady adjacent, there's a, a influential church lady in her life. What if every story had that element? And then I just kind of went from there. And so, you know, in some of the subsequent stories, that element is, it looms large. And then in others, it's just like a whisper, like in um, Not Daniel, there's this one line where she says, away from our mother's Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's the only indication that you get of a church lady. And so in this case, by her saying that, you know, she doesn't, the main character doesn't identify as a church lady, but her mother does. And in fact, the guy, you know, was their plural, their mother's Jesus, you know, his mother as well. So we never see those two women. They're upstairs in hospice, they're dying, but they are there. Their presence obviously has influenced their children. And it's only this moment that we see between their their children, but there's, you know, there's still church ladies there. Right. And then you have others where, you know, people are arguing about scripture. So <laughs> it runs the gamut. What is it about the, the concept of a church lady that is so appealing to you, do you think, as a writer? I think it's because, for me, it taps into identity. And starting in my earliest, um, from my early childhood and memory, that uh, what we talked about earlier of that, who are you going to be? You know, what ki- what what does it mean to be a woman? Mm-hmm. What kind of woman are you going to be? And the influence of the church for me and for so many of us is it becomes a life and death question. <laughs> you know, if you tie in these notions of eternity mm-hmm. and heaven and hell and stuff like that, it becomes one of these really critical questions. And I'm finding that for myself and even from other women that I'm hearing from, even if you are not, you know, uh, in the church, even when you leave the church, um, you know, you don't leave those stories behind. You don't leave those teachings behind. You have, you may have to unlearn some things, but you, you know, it, it, if nothing else is still in the back of your mind somewhere, or we live in a culture that is heavily influenced um, by the church, even as people are, are, um, you know, fewer mm-hmm. people are going to church these days, church, um, attendance and membership is on the, on the decline but you know certain cultural notions are rooted in um in 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 you know the church in these church traditions around the you know like the madonna whore you know that that you can eat there are only two kinds of women you can mm-hmm. be you know um and and so those kinds right. of binaries yeah. and things so you don't have to be in the church to be burdened by a binary. You know, it's heavily in our culture in that, you know, we want to put women in boxes. We want to define womanhood. And, and you know, we don't, there, you know, we had JK Rowling earlier this year saying that trans women aren't women. And, you know, so all right. of these influences are still there, whether we step foot in a church or not. Um, and, and so many of us are still grappling with those questions and for me, even though I don't personally grapple with them, um, I still find it fascinating because those kinds of questions, you know, who you're going to be and what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be good and all of that? I mean, it really shaped the definitely the first 30, 35 years of my life. Um, and then you, mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. that aligned with my, when my mother died. So we've got these two you know, huge influences. Um, And so they are definitely going to show up in my writing. Um, I'm trying to intentionally in the writing I've done since um, the book has come out, um, turn away from that, just trying new things. Um, And so I won't say that my, like, I'm no longer interested in, in, the church ladies or any of those questions. I still am. I'm still writing my novel, which, you know, the main character is a preacher's wife. She's the first lady of the church. And I want to see that through, you know, but I feel like I did satisfy something like that. I I turned a corner in my own life by completing the collection. Mm, I love that. That makes me think, um, 
one of the greatest pieces of advice I've heard on the show uh, is uh, the author Lisa Ko had a mentor who told her um, to write the book. You, you have to become the person you want to be to write the book you want to write. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and I just love that, that idea that like, that it's, I don't know, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, just in general, like this, the idea of the writing as a relationship. And so like that, this is what you got out of this relationship with this collection, I think is yeah. super interesting. Um, yeah. I want to jump back to what you said about uh, identity, because it, it made me think of the first story in the collection, Eula, um, and and the struggle with with identity there, where you've got these two women, one of whom is, is kind of very clear eyed about who she is, and the other one who is kind of living um, living in in ways that she sort of doesn't want to particularly admit to. Right. And and I think that part of what is so intriguing to me about you know it comes up there and. And it comes up in in Peach Cobbler, which I think is is maybe my favorite story. I don't know. We don't need to pick favorites, but I think Peach Cobbler is an amazing story. Um, <laughs> but the idea of like the church keeping its own secrets, or like you having to keep your secrets from the church to mm-hmm. stay in the church. You know, the idea that the secrets aren't necessarily again going back to those binaries and the Madonna whore thing. It's like, well, your secrets you can be punished for, but but their secrets are okay. And many of these characters are on similar journeys, but I think a couple are not. And I think that Eula is maybe is maybe one that goes against the grain of kind of the rest of the the protagonists in the stories, and um, the mother in Peach Cobbler as well is kind of this you know these women who are um, more complicit. Let's say they're maybe they're on the other side of that divide, um, but but they do understand that there's a certain cognitive dissonance that they need to maintain to feel comfortable and safe there. Right. So. Um, you know, if we wanted to, you know, <laughs> embrace a binary, like which characters are trying to get free and which characters aren't, you know, or, you know, maybe it's not get free, not get free. It's like, how do you define freedom? How do you, you know, how much value do you place on it? Like I think about Eula and she's probably someone who would say that, you know, well, well there's a common expression in evangelical circles, freedom in Christ that you, you know, that that's the ultimate freedom. Um, but then it, it, you know, it doesn't always look that way, <laughs> you know, but, mm-hmm. but people you say that, you know, because you have been saved by Christ's sacrifice, that you have the freedom to be fully yourself, make mistakes, you know, that you are, you know, your, mm-hmm. your admission to heaven, which I don't know, it sounds like a amusement park, but you know, that it's been, you know, Jesus has paid the price and there's freedom that comes with that. But then, uh, so that's what's often said, but then you also get this counter message that you've got to be so careful. Like everything is the devil and everything is going to be, you know, a, you know, slippery slope straight to hell. Um, and, and so talk about contradictions, right? Um, yeah. And so there are people who I would say, you know, if I had to venture a guess, that Carolina would say, you know, freedom in Christ means that you, you know, the whole world, whole world is yours. You know, that we're not meant to live these very small lives. That we should be, you know, people mm-hmm. of passion and people of creativity and people of love and and pleasure and laughter and all of those things. That you know, she might just define freedom in Christ that way. Eula, of course, would not. Um, and it would be interesting to ask Eula about the word, you know, freedom, because somebody like Eula, I think, would go with the freedom bondage metaphor and talk about bondage mm-hmm. to sin. And that, you know, Jesus is supposed to free you from the bondage of sin. And so you know, this is why she has to play all these mind games with herself, right? That this isn't real. This doesn't, what she's doing, doesn't count as sex. It's only once a year, you know, that that, all these, you know, um, mental and emotional gymnastics that she has to do just to allow herself to have pleasure. And so it's interesting you mentioned that alongside Peach Cobbler because the mother there yeah, it would be interesting which which how she might define freedom. Um, but we know one thing we know for sure is that she doesn't want her daughter to think 
that the world is free and open. She wants her daughter to expect very little, um, which I would say, you know, she herself expects very little. Um, and so um, she might say freedom is an illusion. It's a trap. It's not real. It's not, it's not available to people like them. Right. I think you're probably right about that. <laughs> That would be her. That would be her take. Um, <laughs> I want to transition a little bit into talking about just kind of your writing life in general. Um, but I would love to do that via Peach Cobbler because I read you talking about how many times it had been rejected, mm -hmm. and I was really struck by your your commitment to your vision as it was as you were getting this feedback. Um, and I wonder if you could talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that experience, and you know getting this feedback that that you just know doesn't speak to the story and kind of how how you sort of soldier on through that and and are able to say like no this is this is how it should be and and I'm going to stick with that until somebody agrees with me right i mean i think it's that's one of the great things about writing a collection is you have lots of stories and so you have less chance of becoming obsessed with like getting <laughs> one published it's like i must get this story published like oh okay it didn't get published I'll, you know i'm gonna keep working on these other things um i try to think about it in terms of fit mm. not that i'm gonna keep writing and rewriting to try and make this story fit this particular place but if an entity comes back and tells me we didn't think it was a good fit for us because of this or that or whatever, um, you know, it could be useful information. I mean, Toni Morrison said that's how we should take critique and revision. It's like, you're just getting information. Mm -hmm. It's not personal. Um, and so I think to the extent that you cannot take the feedback personally, um, and it's easier to do that if you don't have so much at stake writing on one story or even one book, right? Like Anne Lamott, I read her years ago and she was like, listen, if when you publish your book, nothing's going to change, right? <laughs> if you, you know, your mental illness is still going to be there. If you hate your thighs, you're still going to hate your thighs when that's when that book comes out, you know? And so it's, I think you could say on a smaller level, it's the same for stories. Like getting the story published is not going to be the thing that fixes your life. Right, right. You know, and if you're waiting to be happy once you publish a story, that's not really happiness, you know? And so, but if your happiness and your sense of self-worth and your sense of your value as a writer is tied up in whether somebody at a publication wants your story or not, you know, you're really giving people way too much power over mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a matter of fit. And so something, you know, everything's not for everybody. And so that's what I took away from Peach Cobbler is that it wasn't a good fit for these publications. They know what they want. They know what their readers want or they believe they do. Um, and they decided that it wasn't my story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, obviously I'm completely, people never ever argue with an editor. I'm also an editor. And so I, I'm on both sides of it. If somebody tells you that, say thank you and just keep going. Right, right. Um, and don't rewrite it and then try and send it back to, you know, none of that. Um, but what I did that was helpful was, um, you know, I have other people read my work before I send it out and as I'm sending it out, you know, so I can bounce when I do get feedback, when I do get a good rejection where they you know, tell me why and, and, and give me some feedback that I could find useful. Then I go back to good writer friends of mine and share it. I also have people who read my writing who are not writers. Mm -hmm. They're readers, but they're good readers. Um, and so they give me a, a different perspective than my writer friends do. And then my agent was an editor before she was an agent. So um, she's got a great eye. And so there are stories I've sent to her before I sent out. And Peach Cobbler is one where one time I got feedback that it was just too long. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, looked at it, read through it again with that in mind, like thinking of places that possibly could be cut out or that maybe I was just being a little indulgent or something. And I just couldn't figure out where to cut. And so I went to my agent and I said, this is what the, this is the feedback I got. I can't figure out where to cut. And she said, you know, I'll read it again. She read it again. She's like, I can't think of anywhere to cut. At that point, then it's a matter of finding a good home for that story. Yeah. Right. 
You know, it's like, I've done all I can do. And also I don't want to keep working on the same story over and over again. Like I, you know, at a certain point, I'm like, that's it. That's what it's going to be. And it's going to make it into this book or it's not. And, um, and, or it'll find publication somewhere or not. Um, and that's okay too. You know, we don't have to publish everything that we write. Um, and so I think just having a little bit of distance and working out stuff about self-worth and self-esteem and your purpose and all of that, it, you know, it can't be dictated by whether or not you're publishing because publishing is fickle. Publishing is biased. Publishing has a lot of shit going on with it. Right. And so that's not the thing that you want driving your well-being. Right. Well, and, and that so much of that echoes what you, um, I took uh, your wonderful class uh, with White Whale about um, sort of your relationship with writing, uh, which is, mm. is a, I'll let you talk more about it, explain it to folks, but it, it was amazing and is very much about uh, sort of Toni Morrison's uh, approach to thinking about her work and, and sort of how that, that has informed the way that you think about your work. Um, I got a lot out of that for exactly those reasons. I think it can be really, um, you know, you said, I believe in the class that, that when your mom died, a lot of your fears around writing just sort of disappeared because you, you sort of had this different perspective about the kind of time available to you and, and what was worth doing with it. And, and is it worth, you know, hemming and hawing and, and not actually doing the work? Could you talk a little bit about sort of how you've cultivated your relationship to your writing? Yeah. Um, you know, I think my, um, my mother's passing, you know, her, her death was a reminder, you know, that we just don't have a lot of time. And, um, and so that added a sense of urgency for me about my writing. And then I'm also at the, you know, at that time was raising two small kids. Um, I was also in the process of getting a divorce and I just have very little time, you know, I'm, I'm, and I've certainly over the years have gotten better about, um, making that time and making my writing time, um, a priority. Um, but at that time, back then, it was like, I was always like looking for scraps of time to try and write. And so all of my, you know, the, the, the doubts and fears and, and all of that stuff, I, I don't know. I think I was for so long, I think grief had me on autopilot. <laughs> so that was part of it of that I just, you know, if I was going to, if I had any time to write, I was going to write. And then I, I didn't have the emotional bandwidth to like fret and beat myself up about it. Mm -hmm. I was fretting about other things. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It does. But, yeah. but for writing, it was like, it's going to be what it's going to be. And, and I think, you know, losing my parents also created this kind of sense of surrender, right? That I learned worrying and rang, you know, wringing your hands about things really didn't do anything. It didn't solve anything. It just wears you out. Um, mm -hmm. And I just didn't have the emotional bandwidth to do that. And so it was sort of like, right, and hope for the best, <laughs> right, and push it out there. And, and it, it helped too that um, I was uh, for the early years, like my, I think it's, it's 2004, um, before my mom passed away in 2005, I had started working as a, um, I had a column at Literary Mama and I was one of like a dozen columnists and we had a rhythm and it was, you write and then two editors will edit your work. And then all of the other columnists who had time would give you feedback and you're giving them feedback. And this was ongoing. Oh, that's amazing. And so I think that you know, that kind of factory approach you know, right. helped me like, look, I, there was no time to be precious about this. Now were there, and, and, and I also, um, my approach to revisions, um, were like, it's a gift. Like when you're working with good editors, it's a gift that they're giving you. They're telling you how to make it better. And, um, early on, like in the early 2000s, when I first started trying to write a novel. So before I had ever written anything for publication, um, a veteran journalist, Tony Norman, who became my mentor, 
he was the first person to um, edit and give me feedback on this chapter of a novel that I was writing. And at that time, my mindset was I needed him to tell me it was good, right? Because that I wanted back then, it was like, I need this validation. I need to be a real writer. And I hadn't published anything. And he gave it back to me and it was all marked up because he's old school. He actually printed it out and marked it up. And I was devastated at first. And then I looked at the comments and I was like, oh, this is how you do it. This is how you make it better. And then I continued to have that experience with Literary Mama and those columnists and editors. And it was like, we're just all trying to make the writing better. And that's right. that's more important than somebody saying, oh, this is good, right? Because, you know, lots of people can tell you that something's good, but to grow as a writer, to try new things, to, you know, the, the good stuff takes revision. Um, I didn't know this at the time, but as we talked about in the workshop that you referenced, you know, Toni Morrison was talking about revising 13 times. She talked about finishing The Bluest Eye, deciding it wasn't right, whatever that means, (laughs) and then rewriting the whole book. And so that's the work. Yeah. So do the work, you know, and, um, and so that kind of was my approach was like, okay, when people, when, when smart people, smart editors and kind editors who, you know, are thoughtful and sharp, when they give you feedback, that's a gift. And so I began to appreciate rewriting more than writing, like drafting is hard, but then the rewriting is where you can kind of make the magic and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so, it, so it's like we talked about in the workshop, it's your mindset, it's how you think about writing. Um, but I think so often we, co- we can come to writing from a place of terror, right? We're looking to be validated, like, especially if you've gone to school mm-hmm. for this or you're you know, we think that someone's not successful at writing if they're not publishing a New York Times bestseller, if they don't have three books or that they haven't published yet. Like, that's a lot of pressure. Um, and so, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. of it is getting away from that pressure, whether you're putting it on yourself or someone else in your life is putting it on you. I think that makes a huge difference. Um, My parents were dead, so I didn't have parents breathing down my neck. And it was just me. I could, you know, I was the only one that could stand in my way. I love that. Um, And that's a a perfect segue to uh, the question that I always like to ask at the end of these conversations, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Ooh, Um, I like when I can make myself laugh. I like when I surprise myself. Um, I like when I create characters that I find them to be interesting people. Like they feel real to me and like, I wish I could actually know them. Um, if I can satisfy, you know, please myself in that way, Mm -hmm. then I feel satisfied as a writer that I've written a story that, um, that I'm proud of. Cause if I feel that way, then I think, Oh, other people are going to feel this way about it too. But even if they don't, like, I really like it. Look, I've been lucky, lucky. Like, I don't think I've written anything that I've been in love with that everybody else is like, what are you thinking? You know, that hasn't happened, (laughs) you know? Um, but, you know, actually, there is one story that I had decided to take out of the collection. It could have gone in there. The um, the press, West Virginia University Press, um, accepted a partial manuscript. That's how we sold the book, as a partial. And there was a story in there that um, I ended up taking out because when I wrote it, I thought it was so mm-hmm. cute. You know, I thought it was so fun and clever, but it just wasn't strong enough. And I, you know, I could have taken the time to work on it and and whatnot, but then I just had lost interest. And so that's the other thing is I followed that. If I lose interest in something, it's time to let it go because it's too much work to then make it interesting to me and then hope it's interesting to somebody else. So it's got to start with, it's got to hold my interest. Right. Um, And and it's got to, you know, entertain me and make me feel all warm and fuzzy or whatever it's supposed to be doing. It has to do that. Right first for me. Right. That, that whole thing of if you're bored writing, they'll be bored reading. Right. And it's, and, and, you know, the first novel I ever tried to write, that was a big part, actually two novels I tried to write. 
both of the women were bored. <laughs> I, I don't recommend writing bored women. You've got to, you know, again, they've got to subvert that somehow, right? And so yeah. that's the 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 novel that I'm working on now. Um, the whole premise is, you know, she has this thing that she does to escape the boredom and the doldrums right. of of her day-to-day life. But it cannot just be we're walking alongside her board because now I'm bored, you know? <laughs> <So>. Right. <laughs> well, I look forward to the day that that is in the world and to talk to you about it. Um, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.